It is appropriate to my theme for me to be in this capacious pulpit this morning, from which I preached my first five sermons when I was a student here a good many years ago. Beach Miller was ending his ministry. Betty Baker was director of religious education and ready to move on. Ralph Helverson arrived and he became an early friend and mentor to me. And later, Thomas Michelson, a very good friend, occupied this pulpit for a number of years. And one of my best friends, Betty Anastas, offered leadership in this church and in our denomination for a number of years. And always there was the presence of Conrad Wright, who presented, studied, interpreted, and guarded the history of our denomination. I heard of a man in New York who called his mother on Long Island and said, Mom, it's me. And she said, don't be guilty about not visiting me. If I had a stroke, it probably wouldn't be so bad. He said, Mom, we've been very busy. She said, if I fell on the floor, I could probably crawl and get to the telephone. He said, Mom, we're coming to visit you next weekend. Who's we? Carol and me. Who's Carol? Carol's my wife. Your wife's name is Hannah. He said, is this 762-358-1049? She said, 1048. He said, oh, I'm sorry, madam. I'm very sorry. She said, does this mean you're not coming? <laughs> I'm not sure what the most popular song of the Second World War was. There were so many of them. But for the First World War, the answer is clear. It was Keep the Home Fires Burning by Lena Gilbert Ford with music by Ivor Novello. That was a terrible war which probably never should have been fought in which the generals and leaders kept sending young men out of the trenches in great waves, directly into machine gun and artillery fire. And so they faced each other for four bloody years and destroyed a whole generation of their male population. But listen to the words of the song, sung over and over especially in Britain. Keep the home fires burning. 
while your hearts are yearning. Though your lads are far away, they dream of home. There's a silver lining through the dark cloud shining. Turn the dark cloud inside out till the boys come home. So they kept singing, often with tears streaming down their faces, a brutal long time until the boys could leave the trenches and did come home. And the home fires were still burning for all the men who were left behind in France and Holland and Belgium and Germany. I did not realize when I started out to follow this single word, home, how much sheer power it conveys and in how many different ways. Think of the songs. From home on the range, there's no place like home. Just an old shanty in old shanty town and old folks at home. I'll take you home again, Kathleen. And I'll be home for Christmas, another war song. And then we have the snappy catch in the throat of those who were returning home. Chattanooga choo-choo, won't you choo-choo me home and gonna take a sentimental journey, sentimental journey home. Then there's a copious literature of commentary on home and home life, like Victoria Glendening's rueful admission that there's no greater bliss in life than when the plumber eventually comes to unblock your drains. No writer can give that sort of pleasure. And Lord Byron described home in these terms in 1811. <coughs> Premises are so delightfully extensive that two people might live together without ever seeing, hearing, or meeting each other. I heard Margaret Mead in the 1950s say, what every American woman wants is a refrigerator that no other woman puts anything into or takes anything out of. And it was Margaret Thatcher who said, home is where you come when you have nothing better to do. And think for a moment what a potent adjective home becomes when you use it to describe cooking. I never get any home cooking. I just get the fancy stuff. You know who say that, said that? The Duke of Edinburgh, poor fellow. What I discovered is that home is not just a building, 
It's a powerful idea. Listen to the quick definitions. Home is anywhere I can hang my hat. Home is where you live with your loved ones. Home is a shelter from all terrors, doubt, and division. Home is a restaurant which never closes. And home is where the mortgage is. And finally, Dr. Johnson weighs in. That's the part of the world where people know when you're sick, miss you when you die, and love you while you live. Perhaps that says it all. But I would contend that there are at least three reasons why we need to think about home, this everyday word, and what it really means. <coughs> My first reason is that we face a great national crisis in homes, and we are dealing with it in abstractions. We talk about mortgage failures, foreclosures, the bubble burst, hedge funds, bund bundling mortgages together, selling them to financial institutions, underwater mortgages. We see news stories every day which are very pessimistic about rational solutions like refinancing plans to save people from foreclosure. Some of the recent statistics I got from the Mortgage Bankers Association. One out of every 200 homes will be foreclosed upon. For a city like Washington, D.C., that translates to 3,000 Washingtonians losing their homes to foreclosure each year. And every three months, 250,000 new families enter into foreclosure. And one child in every classroom in America is at risk of losing his or her home because their parents are unable to, for, to pay their mortgage. Meanwhile, the housing market continues to decline. All this obscures the basic reality that millions of American families are losing their homes, and a family that is losing their home is usually being torn apart. Of course, this is tied in with the high unemployment rate. The housing crisis has some definite roots in the great passion for government deregulation that we've been promoting, seen promoted by leaders of both political parties over the last 30 years. 
Financial practices have been allowed in dealing with mortgages which would not have been countenanced in earlier times. And there's a certain tendency to say that if people contract for mortgages that in the long run they cannot afford to pay and so lose their homes, then it's nobody's fault but their own. That might be true if there were a few thousand people in that situation, but when the mortgage industry has been so manipulated in favor of people in the financial industry that millions of people are losing their homes, then the problem is not an individual one, but a failure of the system, which means a failure of the legislative and executive regulation to see that this does not happen. I would not suggest that this is a clear and comprehensive analysis of the real estate and mortgage crisis. My point is that we are dealing with the crisis in terms that are too abstract when the reality is that millions of people are losing their homes and that means that millions of people just like us are being torn apart. And I do not hear a political discussion that is solving that problem. The second reason I would have us delve more deeply into the whole idea of home is that it may have a lot to tell us about how we became the people we are, as well as what motivates us now and where we are headed individually. A great deal of what is important in life takes place right in our homes. Ralph Waldo Emerson called the home a school of power. That is undeniably true and quite intriguing. Do we really learn how to get what we want in the world by seeing how our parents interact to get their own way? I think there's an even more tantalizing question what if we ask ourselves, how was my home right for me? And in what ways did I need something different? My father died when I was seven years old. I was the oldest of four children some well-meaning people said, now you are the man of the family. We often hear every child needs two parents. 
At one level, I could not agree more. I needed a father. But too often, this pronouncement is used either as an argument against gay marriage or it is used to discount the enormous task which confronts single mothers or sometimes today single fathers. One of the questions we face as a society today may be, which is more important? to punish mothers who have borne children out of wedlock, or to do all that we can to ensure that whatever children are born can grow up in a decent home with adequate care. There are all sorts of studies and schools and theories about what constitutes a decent home for any child and parents will differ in many ways about what works best. But I do not know anyone who is suggesting seriously that greater poverty, lack of health and dental care, and an unsafe home environment are good for children. You know, toughen them up. Make them stand on their own feet. Don't we have to think seriously about what kind of home is adequate and what is possible with the support that single parents get from the overall community? And that's not even dealing with the difficult problem faced by every city in our country, the homeless in our midst. As city after city has discovered, it is not just a case of providing a warm bed and some food. We're dealing with mentally ill persons who need someone to see that they stay on their medication. We're dealing with some of the people who used to be locked up in our huge mental hospitals. We're dealing in the context of 9% unemployment and the mortgage crisis with whole families with children who are now homeless. Of course, the most famous person in our history who was homeless said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. But finally, where are we? when it comes to the issue of home. To what extent are all of us perhaps still looking for the home we lost 
or maybe the home we never had. The myth of 19th century America is that everyone came from a farm or a small town. Some of us stayed right there and some of us moved away following jobs or seeking new jobs. The lucky ones got some education, but as we moved around this great country, home remained back there on the farm or in the small town. The myth has been broken by reality for many decades now as we've become more and more a mobile and urban society and families are scattered and we fill up the cities and the suburbs. Do you have a home? Or maybe you have several homes. Where are they? And what do they mean in your life? And what does it mean for us to go home? Is it a happy reunion? Or is it a stirring up of old conflicts and remembrances of earlier vulnerabilities? Seems to me that it is worth knowing. Some weeks ago, the front page of the New York Times told of a man from a village in southern Sudan who was sent off barefoot when he was eight years old, one of the lost boys of the bloody Civil War who trekked hundreds of miles through swamps and deserts and hostile territories, often in packs, sometimes chased by government bombers and slave traders, sometimes forced to be child soldiers. Several thousand of these boys were resettled in the United States Joseph Gadion Khan was one of them. And in this country, he has worked hard, learned to fit in. He got to the dean's list at the University of Iowa. But some weeks ago, he returned to his village for the first time in 22 years where people are poor and there are a lot of mosquitoes. But he says, people are happy here. He was determined not to cry when he went home. And he kept that vow for a full day and he's not decided yet whether he will stay with his people or return to Iowa. Going home can be a complicated business. 
It's been suggested that some people come to a church looking for a home. Have you ever felt that your church was a home? And what would we have to offer in that regard? Maybe we could try to live up to Dr. Johnson's definition. That's the part of the world where they know when you are sick, miss you when you die, and love you while you live.